Welcome listeners to Essential Awakening Podcast and thank you for tuning in for this new series, Black Women's Stories Matter. My name is Pia Antico, Relationships Reset Mentor and founder of Essential Awakening Mentoring. And the inspiration for this series is to address the global relationships problem of fear-based racism. The best way to uh, combat fear-based hate is to provide opportunities for understanding. So I have invited a bunch of fabulous black women from around the world to share their stories of trials, triumphs, and everything in between. And today I have the fabulous Dr. Tarika Nuridin, and she is a social sociologist, author, educator, and based in the US. Welcome, Dr. Tarika, how are you? I am amazing. Thank you for having me here today. Wonderful to be a part of this podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to the interview. Wonderful. Well, I guess the first uh, question is just to have you give us a little bit of, a, of of your background, your your life, where you are, and what you're doing, and um, where you've come from. Okay, in a I'll try and make it a bit condensed. Mm, I or we can have the War and Peace saga. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm originally from New York, and I, in terms of my racial and ethnic background, I am African American of Hispanic descent. So that has provided me with a unique perspective. And I also am Muslim, so I got a lot of things going on in my life, but it, it was great for New York because New York is a big hodgepodge anyway. Yeah. And so I was born and raised in New York, Brooklyn specifically, and I had a lot of unique experiences in New York that shaped me and my philosophies, and I think which kind of led me to being a sociologist in terms of my studies for school because I had really great educators that really allowed me to look at social issues in a unique and different way. And I don't I don't think that if I was in another place I would have gotten the education that I received when I was in New York. So I really credit some really amazing teachers uh, along the way. I had some really bad ones too, unfortunately, but, but, but uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, uh, I learned a lot about myself in New York, but then I also felt at a, probably by the age of 17 that I wanted something more out of life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. For a long time, I felt like I didn't fit in with New York, that I was just too nice for New York. Uh, I had different experiences in New York that different incidents, cra some crazy, some just, you know, you ne New York is one of those places where you never know what's going to happen. And I got to a point where I was just tired of wondering what kind of crazy day it was going to be that particular day. So Can you give us a little bit of a, an insight? An example. Sure. Oh, there's so many incidents. It's just so many. <laughs> so let's see. Okay. Hmm. Well, one was actually a bit scary. So I was waiting for my friend at a bus stop before the age of cell phones. So before the age of cell phones, the way you would have to meet, <laughs> yeah, the way you would have to meet someone is you would call them from a home phone and you would say, let's meet at such and such time at such and such place. And then, <laughs> and then you would get to such and such place. Whoever got there first would call the, I guess, call the home phone because there was no cell phone. And then if they didn't answer the home phone, then you knew they were on their way and you would just wait. And that's 
basically what I was doing. So I, so this particular day, I was waiting for my friend to come and meet me, and um, a guy approaches me, and I think that he may be homeless. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's homeless, and he approaches me and he's talking to me, and I'm a little scared. And, and at this, at this point in my life, I'm a teenager, so I'm relatively young, and. So he's talking to me and I don't really want to talk to him, but I'm waiting here at this place for my friend. And he, I remember he has on a jean jacket. Inside of his jean jacket, I see a knife, Ooh. but it's a, the knife is, it has padding on the, the handle. Like it's like tape, the handle is taped up. But so I, so then, that's when I'm really scared because then I'm like, oh, goodness grief. This guy has a knife in his jean jacket pocket. So anyway, long story short, I am, I'm talking to him and, and waiting for my friend to come and he's still there. And, and I'm trying to navigate this difficult situation that I didn't, you know, I just, I'm a teenager. I'm going to meet my friend and lo and behold, I run into this, run into this guy. So that was just one example of a situation. Thank, thankfully, nothing happened to me, but it just something like that, experiencing something like that at a young age draws your attention to homelessness, mental health issues, uh, violence against women, because it could have went really wrong, really fast. So it, so, as I was saying before, my time in New York kind of really shaped me into being who I was. And I, I feel like I started out with a more morbid story, but I can, a, a more positive. <laughs> Life more is positive. And it's actually really interesting because it's, it has, it was a sin, my little brain was sort of going, okay, I, I want to ask you, because you're, you're a sociologist, I want to ask you your to really expand on um you know your your take on what's going on both in the u.s and globally as a black woman and what what's going on and what 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 needs to be what needs to be done to to combat the racism and the and the and the structural inequality is that the next question? That might be the next question, yes. Because you've got the brain. You're the sociologist a, here. Well, <laughs> it's a, honestly, it's such a big question. So is the first part of the question, what's going on right now? Yeah. And, and and you answer it as I mean yes please yes. well you're, you're the professor here so I'm I'm, I'm going to cut really like shut up and I will let you frame absolutely the question and the answer because we need to learn if that's okay with you. Yeah, learning is great. <laughs> now, I, whatever whatever I can impart is you know I, I i love to impart anything i i don't assume that i have all the answers so i want to make that clear but i you know i do have training in sociology and research skills as well so in terms of what's going on now as it relates to for me being a black woman is something that's been going on from the onset it's i wouldn't say that it's anything new i think there's a saying what nothing new under the sun or something to that effect and it's a combination of things so in in sociology we have a discussed we have different theoretical discussions and one of those discussions we have is is dealing with something called intersectionality and intersectionality is when the different social positions that you occupy intersect with each other so if it's your race, your class, your income, your marital status, just whatever social position that you occupy in the in the grand scheme, um, they can intersect with each other. And so if you are, I would say that many people would agree that we 
probably live in a patriarchal, well, at least in maybe in America, that it's a patriarchal society, <laughs> male dominated, yeah. right? And, and globally, that most societies are actually more patriarchal. So then that gives advantages to males, right? So we're, we're creating hierarchy here, right? And then if you look at different societies, you could say, okay, well, if you have more money, then that gives you an advantage. So then if you're male and have more money, then you're higher up than others in terms of the social hierarchy. Then, of course, with, unfortunately with racism, like based in, not just racism, but colorism. So based on your, in, and I use ra racism, like for a sociologist, race is a socially constructed dynamic you cannot so in other words these racial category quote-unquote categories that we occupy don't hold water if you're looking at science there's so if you take a in other words if you take a drop of someone who's considered maybe someone who's considered black or maybe African-American black, you take a drop of their blood and compare them to someone who might be considered white, right? They actually have more similarities within their, um, in terms of their blood than, than people that are considered to be within the same quote unquote racial group. Wow. And that's a, that was a huge thing for me that I learned that these cat these categories are really labels that we occupy but unfortunately because people attach meaning to these categories and labels then they have real life consequences and i like to give other examples of that because sometimes it's hard for people to really catch on that that there are no legit racial groups there there are differences in what we call phenotype and phenotype is how you look so in terms of your skin complexion the shape of your nose the shape of your lips we're not denying any of those things when we say that there are no racial categories we're saying that th yes there are differences in eye 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 color hair color texture all of that yes but when we say that this person is quote unquote white this person is quote unquote black and a lot of and a lot of times those groupings are based on how a person looks. It's actually, it's, it's actually non-scientific. You have people in the same family. You might, you might know that a lot of people, when I would give this example in my classes, they would kind of smile because sometimes you have siblings or family members that are genetically, quote, genetically related to you that you don't look anything like them. There are differences in skin, skin tone and color and, and eye color and hair color within the same family. So the, the fact that people are bold enough to say, oh, okay, I'm gonna look at this person and then put them in a box is yeah. unfortunately mm -hmm. very, very problematic. I will say this, because mm -hmm. uh, I, I also taught social psychology. So one thing that human beings do is like, we like to put, we like to do this thing it's called schemas where when we look at something we try and categorize it so i'm not trying to say okay everybody is wrong for for looking at someone and then putting them in a certain category what i'm saying is we when we attach value to that category so when we put someone we not only put them in the in the box right which is which may or may not be correct but then and then we attach a label and a meaning to that, that category is that box is bad yeah exactly and then we treat them differently as a result of the box we think they're in that we think they're in or they are in i want to give you an example of that once i was walking down the street in new york and so as i said i'm african-american and also of, of hispanic background and I also am Muslim and I happen to wear a headscarf. And so I'm walking down the street in New York and a guy comes up to me, he says, where are you from? And I say, New York, Brooklyn, right? And he's like, okay, but when, it was like, it seemed to be unsatisfactory for him. And he said, well, where are your parents from? And I said, Brooklyn. And then that seemed to be unsatisfactory. He, no, 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 where are your, where? <laughs> <laughs> and he kept up. and then he actually told me I never forget this he said you're lying 
And he walked away. This is what you say, like you're from the jungle or something. I mean, like what? It's just... Well, what happened there is that my answers didn't coincide with his his ideas of who, where I was from or who I was. So therefore he said, you're lying to me. Because, sure? because he was right. <laughs> because in other words, right, he mansplained <laughs> to me who I was. We yep. call it mansplaining, right? He, yeah, it's called he, mansplaining. Yep. He saw me and then he kind of already figured me out. Yeah. Because, you know, men can do this. They, <laughs> men, right. women, you know, people who have visions of grandeur, you know, they're like, yeah, I know this person. And yeah, so that taught me a lot about what kinds of boxes that we place each other in. Yeah. And it made me work on myself because we all have biases, right? And there's implicit biases and explicit biases. So there are things that we're biased about that we're unaware of and things that we actually may be aware of. But what that taught me is as I navigate dealing with different people of different background in the world. And you know, this world has about 8 billion people. So there's a lot of a lot of different people you might encounter to actually listen to people and hear their stories and hear their experiences and don't think that you know something about a group uh, or that you may or may not know. You don't, you have no idea, you know, what people's experiences are. So it taught me a lot about yeah. having to, and, and, and there's a great book that I use in, in sociology. A sociologist by the name of Patricia Hill Collins had a book called Black Feminist Thought. And she, in that book, she spoke about giving voice. And giving voice is basically a research strategy of finding out about people's experiences from themselves and not attaching the experiences to them. Mm. And I think that's something that's really powerful and meaningful. And it's, it's something that's used in qualitative research, which is, in qualitative research, is research that's done in words. So for example, you can do an interview, like you're doing right now, you're, you're doing an interview and you can use those words and then try and form patterns and meanings from the the words that you're you're getting from the person that you're interviewing. But I think it's really important that we don't impose our ideas of what is happening and let let it come from the source itself. So it, these different experiences that I've had really shaped me. I feel like I went really far off of your question because I was talking no, about No, 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 actually, you did not. You that, See, a part, this is all part of voice and, and, and giving space for voice. I, I, it's, it's hard because some people want to have some guiding questions, but I actually didn't want to do that. I wanted this to unfold because each woman that's going to be uh, talking with me is going to have some absolutely amazing perspective that is uh, unique uh, and um, I don't want to I didn't want to talk over it and in fact I'm just going oh gosh yes this is just so exciting um, it, and it really is I just I love everything that you're talking about because both uh, both intellectually, but uh, but also experientially. Um, one of the things that popped in my head, and I was thinking, how how do we as individuals? What tool might you suggest? What way can we um, help to enable ourselves to shut up and listen? Is because we have to we have to do some soul searching there. Yeah, I think we need yeah. to stop being so arrogant and entitled. People yeah. are can be extremely arrogant and entitled and think they know. And actually, we have to do the inner work ourselves before you have a discussion with someone else. Right? You you kind of have to do that inner work. Otherwise, it's like wearing the rose colored glasses or the lens that you have 
yourself will be how you see the world. Mm. So if you view a certain group as less than you, then when you have interactions with that group of people, you will treat them like that. And you may not, and like I said, I was talking about implicit bias and explicit. You may not even know that you're doing it. I'm going to give you an example as a black woman, a Muslim woman, right? So I've literally walked down the street sometimes and I'm calling out white men. I'm not saying all white men, but this is how, this is my experience. I've been walking down the street and I'll notice that they won't move. Like if we're both walking, like, so I'm walking one way and they're coming the other way that I have to move first. And that's that point of sometimes feeling like you're not being seen. Like, okay, am I invisible? Sometimes I'm scratching my head. I'm like, dude, I'm walking down the street. I don't, like, I don't understand why I need to move myself out the way first in order for you to, like, in, in other words, if someone is walking straight at you and you're walking, right, Yes. And you feel yes. like if I don't move, I'm going to get hit. That's how it feels like. So, I, walking, walking. I mean, I, I mean, one shouldn't spend one's life playing um, chicken uh, to see who moves, who dodges first. But um, out of interest, have you done that? What is what has happened? I, I mean, it just seems so rude. I, firstly, that that it. I, I, yeah, it sometimes I think it's, I think that's part of the implicit bias. Sometimes I think it's implicit, like, and and sometimes I'll just test. I'm like, will they move? Like, move? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> like, do. I do it, but it's it's just interesting. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's interesting. That was just one example that oh, kind of popped yeah. up in my head. But you you might have heard this word called microaggression maybe yeah. heard this term. So these are things that are done that seem very, you know, like, okay, this is just this is little minor little things. But over time, those things can like take a toll For sure. on, sure. on people. When you feel like, okay, you're not being heard, you're not being seen, people are doing things, uh, maybe even not knowing that they're doing things. And but those things can actually harm people. Sure. So it's in in terms of the the level of work that needs to be done, I would say there's a lot of work that needs to be done with I mean, how do you teach someone that? <laughs> you know, I yeah. Of course you I mean, I and when I say it's not to say you can't teach people these things but let's say a person is adult you know and they come from a certain background maybe they feel privileged or so maybe they feel like I don't need to move out of the way maybe you don't know what is going on uh so it would be honestly I would I would like to see a truth and reconciliation panel in America yeah which is what happened in South Africa when you had the um, the Hutus and the the, the the terrible genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis that killed over a million people. And the fact that, did I say South Africa? Did I say Rwanda? I'm hoping I said Rwanda and not South Africa, but. I think you said um, South Africa. I meant to say Rwanda. But wasn't um, the, there post-apartheid uh, a truth in Yes. Well, yeah, I believe in South Africa, but I'm what I was referencing. And Tutsis, and that's Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. I was referencing the Rwandan genocide, which yeah. I felt like was so deep because the the murderers were coming into contact with the families of the victims, and they were really trying, and they were having a dialogue, and it was. And that's a very tough thing to do. Anyone who's been wrong, you know, but it was almost like a social court. And I think, unfortunately, that's my daughter tapping on the door. Uh, Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. So I, I use the example of the Rwandan genocide because that was a really huge step towards healing. And I think that's the point. Like if we want to really heal from the scars of the past in order to move forward, we have to acknowledge that a wrong, not just acknowledge that a wrong was done, but then actually try and actively correct and fix those wrong. We don't want to pay lip service to, oh yeah, you know, that was bad, but today is a new day. It's like, yes, today is a new day, but the actions of the past shape the present, which can shape yeah. the future. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, it's no point. I mean, the, the protests and awareness campaigns are great uh, and all for it, and we need it as a 24 7 thing, but there are systems and structures that have being built on this racism that disenfranchise a whole bunch of people that need to be torn down really and rebuilt. Yeah, and I like to say and acknowledge that today is Juneteenth. And I'm not sure if you've heard of Juneteenth, I, I, but I, it's I, been I, getting I, a lot of ignorance to the full capacity of what it is. Could you please tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm by no means am I a Juneteenth expert, but no, you know, but I will. You're more expert than me, so please. <laughs> well, I'll I'll just say that uh, Juneteenth in America is, is uh, treated among many African Americans as a holiday because it celebrates when the the day when African American African Americans were actually freed in America as opposed to the Emancipation Proclamation Day which so the Emancipation Proclamation Day was January 1st 1865 that was through Abraham Lincoln but just because Lincoln gave the order doesn't mean that African American enslaved African Americans were freed and it, and so the state of Texas uh didn't tell the Africans that they were free. And and so some two and a half years later, so it wasn't until June 19th, I believe it was 1857. And this is even, you know, after the Civil War that that the that troops were sent in to Texas to wow. to enforce to enforce um enforce the freedom. And like I said, in terms of the truth and reconciliation, um, I, I think a lot of lip service is paid to the injustices and oppression. And we have, we have to, if we're really serious about it, we have to have those, not only just have those tough um, conversations, but I think there needs to, some amends need to be made. Absolutely. You know, some made. African Americans are the only ones that haven't had really any form of reparations in, in the United States. Other groups have, have gotten some level of reparation. And I will say, say this, um, there have been minor cases, some groups of African Americans getting reparations. Like for example, in the Tuskegee experiment, it was a 40 year experiment done in um, Alabama of around 600 black sharecroppers and who had who had syphilis and at the time of the study they had they had they had syphilis and they were studied but during the time of this 40-year study a, a cure for syphilis was found and they didn't administer the cure to um, the men in the study and then they got nurses involved and it was a very just vicious study. So, I mean, some of the families uh, that were some of the, because the men winded up unfortunately dying from syphilis and it took place from 1940 to 1970. I think it was actually my time. It was the 40 years. Was it from 1930 until 1970? Something to that effect. And, but yeah, you're talking about 40 years. I mean, uh, that's, 
quite amazing just to, to see the disease, how the disease affects African-Americans. And, and once again, these are based on racist notions that black bodies are different than white and bodies. White bodies. Yep. And this is how, so, and if you look up like race and racial classifications, you'll notice that they change over time, which show that they're socially constructed. So race in America, like what it looked like, what in the past was more like white. And then the, the term that they would use is like Negro, right? Yeah. So if you look at, if you look at designations of race in the past, and then it'll, you know, and then you might see mulatto, as another kind of designation of like a, a mixture. Um, you would see, you, you might, then later on color came about, then you have African-American coming later. So these designations are really flexible and fluid and subject to change. Like some places there are hundreds of racial designations, like for example, in Brazil. Yeah. Um, and it could be based on your skin complexion as well as the money that you have. So it's, you know, it, it, this is part of these constructions that we that we live under. So I think it's really important that we speak on it. Yeah. We speak yeah. on injustices. We align ourselves with groups that also do the same. And as an African-American woman, I feel like it's really important that I not only speak on it and align myself with groups, but also not feel alone. I, I feel like yeah. when you're a member of a group that is seen with less value, or not just one group, because I remember many groups that could be seen with less value. I'm a woman. I'm african-american hispanic and muslim so it's like multi so i'm straddling different hierarchies here that are intersecting with each other and i think it's really important that you don't self-isolate you find other people that you can connect with because the the world can be harsh and the world can be mean and there's something as an educator we learned about, you know, called the self-fulfilling prophecy. And the self-fulfilling prophecy is basically that if someone labels you a certain way and you start, and let's say it's a negative label and you start to believe that label and you can start acting out on it. And I feel like, unfortunately, sometimes there's a lot of self-hate um, in uh, among among groups that are have been oppressed and and that's very disparaging and you know there are many factors for it people who are in groups that are seen as less than are not taught to love themselves <laughs> i mean it's yeah. just yeah. like it's not so it's like um for example james brown had a song i think it came out in the 60s like say it loud i'm back i'm black and i'm proud and that was considered to be a revolutionary song because to be proud to be black was considered to be like wow you know like wow you're proud you know i thought black was supposed to be something negative so it's like no say it loud i'm black and i'm proud and you know and so you have it's like it forces people to have to um from groups to create like these mantras and and assert themselves in ways to show that I do exist, Black lives do matter, and I matter, I'm valued, and un unfortunately, it's just what's going on in the world is, yes, it's alarming and upsetting, but it's, like I said, it's been going on. It's it's just being brought to the forefront more. I I taught about there's a there's a book. It's a difficult yeah. book to get through, but there's a book by Ralph Ginsburg called A Hundred Years of Lynching. I challenge yeah. anyone to read that book. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. It's going to be Kindle in a second. I feel like if you don't understand what's if you don't understand what happened in 
Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, I, I can't speak for like what's, what's going on all over the world in terms of every single culture. You know, I'm not a cultural expert of every single country, but in terms of America and the racial history and the, the violence mm -hmm. and how this stuff is showing up later, you have to look at the past and what happened. And, you know, even the whole thing of where people would say, not really quite understand Black Lives Matter, and they would say all lives matter. And it really shows the, but the statement Black Lives Matter was not about negating other lives. It's saying that Black Lives Matter because in America, Black lives haven't mattered. And you can just look at it historically. And that's why I, I, I mean, it's a heavy book, you know, but um, the book, A Hundred Years of Lynchings, documents, it's by Ralph Ginsburg, and it documents, it's an older book too, pub, I mean, in terms of the publication, but it documents a hundred years of lynchings in American newspapers. And when you look at, you know, families being brought to lynchings, children, pieces of um, parts of people's bodies were charred and they were taken as souvenirs. It, I mean, you have to really think about that and say, what? Like, and this is after slavery, right? I mean, the, of course, lynchings have, the abuse of the black body started at the very onset. And, but then when you look at these things and then you say, wow, there hasn't been any accountability. It, it's very hard to get accountability for harming a black body. So when you, when you look at like, you know, what's happening with police officers and, and people. And, and here's the other thing, and I was talking about the entitlement. People think, oh, I mean, they're cops or they're, I call the cops and the cops come and it's fine. So once again, people are looking at their experiences and thinking that they're generalizing, they're superimposing their experiences with everybody else. And you can't, you just really can't do that that then you're 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 minim you're minimizing and erasing the experiences that people have had for generations and, no. and so yeah it like i said what's going on in this country and around the world is upsetting but for me given what i know it it's nothing new i was talking about my life in new york um, when I was younger. In New York, there was police brutality. There was a man named, I'll never forget, I was young. His name was Ahmadou Diallo. I'll never forget. And I was a teenager, I believe, when it happened, when he was shot over 40 times by the police. And they, he, he was a African Muslim immigrant and he was at his door and he was just, in his pocket, he was taking out his wallet and they were saying, oh, it's a, you know. And and so, and there's another one, Abner Luima, that was another, uh, that was, um, the Abner Luima situation in New York was a, a very, it was a, he was, um, sexually abused in the police, I believe in a station with a with a plunger or something. I mean, yeah, like these things. And so, and then in my in my experience, when I heard of when I first heard of Emmett Till, I can't remember how old I was, but that still affects me <laughs> to this day. Children. As you don't know, do you want to? I mean, I've, I know the story too, but do you want to just expand on Emmett Till for us? Emma, Emmett Till and Emmett Till was, he, I believe he was from um, Illinois, but he was, he went to Money, Mississippi to visit some relatives. And he was accused of whistling or saying, to a white woman and he 
went to his relative's house and then two, I believe it was two armed white men come to the door armed and they basically take him and they brutally murder, murder him and toss him in the river. And he is later found and his mother, his mother's name was Mammy Till. And she decided to have an open casket funeral because she said, I want to, I want the world to see what they did to my son. And so things like, like I mean, Mammy Till is like a hero. Yeah, of course, she's a, she's an amazing figure. And so, yeah. And then, so when Emmett Till happened, that's, so that's in my psyche. I'm like, oh, Emmett Till, right? And I'm young. And that was, that was, that was prior to my time that was that happened in my mother's time right but then we have moments that happen in our time and the reason that they happen is because the problem hasn't been fixed yet so things will reoccur there'll be a reoccurrence of it it might not be the exact it might not look exactly like what it looked like in the past but um i'm not sure if you're familiar with uh uh, African-American child by the name of Tamir Rice. He was 12 years old and killed by police. And uh, he was playing in the park and he had a he had like a toy gun, which we call a BB gun, or I, I believe it was a BB gun, but it was some form of a toy gun. And the cops were called on him. Someone called the cops and said, oh, you know, there's a boy playing with like, I guess a gun or, I don't know if they even called him a boy um, or, you know, but um, anyway, uh, within I guess a couple of seconds or so, his life is taken. And so when I when that happened, I went back to Emmett Till, you know, and then Trayvon Martin, and then you know it's so what you were asking earlier. What are we seeing now? We're seeing the we're seeing the pot boiling over. We're seeing enough is enough. We're seeing what what else? Like how how much how many more black bodies have to die lying on the street? Uh, I mean, the, in the last few weeks, the last week or so, there's been five black men found hanging in various public locations who have all been said that it's suicide. Like, please. I mean, are, yeah, lynching. Yeah, I mean, and like the same know, with Sandra Bland and her, you know, in her cell, oh, yeah, she was accused yeah. of, you know. So we see these reoccurring things, and and even with, um, even with the situation with George Floyd and the words that he said, I can't, breathe. you know, those words, I can't breathe. Those were said pre. Those same words were said previously. Um, um, his name is escaping me. He was in Staten Island. An African American man was killed, and he was telling the cops he was selling um, loose cigarettes. And he was. The cops came around him, and then he told the cops. He said, "I can't breathe." And then they proceeded to inflict force on him, and he passed away. So when we heard. You know, hearing those words for me, I can't breathe. I'm like, we've heard this, or we, we, we've been there, we've done that, we've seen this, we know how it goes, and we know that if things continue along their path, then what, what change is going to happen? Like, there needs to be substantial changes. Um, that, that, that I, I, I don't. From here in Australia, I. I don't know, I mean, you know, you never know from the news um, what's accurate and not, but I had been hearing, uh, I'm not, uh, pardon again, I'm not sure whether this is at a federal level or at different, uh, uh, more uh, local levels, but there had been some talk about um, addressing uh, the, the, the police um, system, the, 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 the judicial system, and, the, and, and particularly in regards to police, has there any, has there been anything significant happen uh, in, as a result of the protests? Have you seen anything happen that's like legit to address this? Well, first I wanted to acknowledge Eric Garner. Eric Garner is the um, the man in, uh, that I was just referencing in, um, in Staten Island, which is in New York, that 
that said I can't breathe and was um, was unfortunately uh, killed by the police. Um, in terms of what's on what's on the agenda moving forward, I, you know there has there's there has been different things in in different states that I've noticed. Um, like so, some people have been fired because <laughs> uh, unfortunately or you know and actually charged right so with eric um george i'm sorry with george floyd uh there have been some charge because we i mean uh, once again going back to the past i mean unfortunately even getting police officers charged with killings is is extremely difficult they might be placed on administrative leave and one you know um so yeah, there there has been I I think because of the, the nature of the protests and the activism, it, it feels different this time and I can't explain how. I, I can't explain why. I've never seen the level of conversations that are being had and in not just conversations, but just in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement gaining the momentum that it's gaining yeah. now and being in, in other groups, being included in it um, and, and recognizing the importance of not just Black Lives Matter, but there have been really what I wanna say is that it, it was through the civil rights movement in the United States that paved the way for equal rights for not just African Americans, but women, you know, other groups to even to even come into the country. Like if you look at um, the immigration policies in New York, in um, the United States prior to the Civil Rights Movement, we would only let in people from certain countries, you know, like, and it was it was not. <laughs> The, the America that we see today in terms of the racial and ethnic diversity is not the America that was of the past, you know, so. We had the white, we are actively, it was called the white Australia policy. Mm. It, it, it only got somewhat kind of, I mean, and it, it got, it got challenged in the seventies with the opening up of some multiculturalism, but even that, even that was initially Europeans like Greeks and Italians. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, and, and our current conservative government of the last 20 years definitely would love to bring white Australia policy back on the uh, agenda again if they could, and they are in small ways, like like un under the table, not as a, yeah, totally. It's yeah. a very, in some ways, quite similar experience, like a, uh, the, the Anglo imperial kind of thing. Right. Sorry, that was a low battery moment. Oh no, but that's okay. <laughs> but um, and I want to say, yeah, I say that to say that there have you know that there's a lot of pressure now being put on um, police departments and mayors and and that African Americans are tired of, the, of yeah. the lip service. Yeah. We're just it. It's like okay, enough is enough. What are you going to do? Don't don't tell me that this is wrong. Like, how is this going to be fixed and how do we move forward? And also we need to understand that we cannot continue doing the same things that we've been doing and expecting different results. No, well, that's so, frankly. Uh, so yeah. what, what can, well, sort of wrapping, wrapping up, what can, I, I guess, first of all, what can um, uh, we, of the non-black non community facilitate uh, in, in having actionable change? What can we do? And then collectively, what can we do? What is needed to take this from just a talking point to what's really needed, which is, you know, the structural and system changes. What, what, what do we need to do? That's that's a tough question. I would say, I, I mean, one of the main things for me would be 
you know, the eradication of the isms, um, but not just the isms, but uh, white supremacy has to be eradicated. Like this, this idea that this whiteness, things that are so, are better and must, you know, and must be protected and put in this bubble and everything else is like subservient to that. It really, um, it, it really has taken its toll on the people of the earth for generations. Um, and the earth is in, you know, I was talking about race earlier, but the earth is not white <laughs> I mean the it's the earth is full of brown people <laughs> you know and so the fact that the people in the largest numbers on the earth are sometimes you know treated the worst and and things and the negative associations with their skin tone and their cultures and um that that's a that's a huge problem for me um and I would say racism is huge, um, any form of oppression and inequality. And yeah. Yeah. I think we can't, we can no longer be silent. I've had, I had experiences in my lifetime where things, things happened and then no one, people were watching, but they didn't say anything, you know? So like once I was pulled off of a plane, and they just called my name. This is after 9-11. So this is like, you know, the Muslim side, right? Yeah. So, cause yeah. I said one of my identities is Muslim, right? And then I'm also a black woman, Hispanic. So, um, pulled off the plane, right? They just say my, they say my name. They say, you know, my name. And then they say, please. Wow. And I'm like, the plane is about to pull off. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. So I'm taking my stuff out the bin up up at the top and once again I'm getting everyone looking at me and a lot of those people are looking at me are white I call it it's like white gaze it's like they're gaze g-a-z-e yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. it's like yeah. they're looking right and they're looking and they're like oh my gosh what's going on and I'm like oh gosh you know and I'll never forget that experience because I they didn't tell me they didn't tell me what it was right but not only that, I remember it was raining outside because the plane was about to take off and they had to pull my baggage from the plane cargo. So they had to open up the open up the plane and I had to describe my my luggage to them because my luggage was loaded because like I said, the plane was about to leave. And so I'm standing there in the rain and it was just a very upsetting situation to be in where people yeah. do yeah. these acts and they, and they don't say why they're doing it, you know, or they they just do it. And and I say that experience to say that, and I feel like my experiences don't, you know, compare to others' experiences. But you know, they're they're still they're still painful and they're still harmful. And there is something called the golden rule: treat people like you want to be treated. Yeah. You know, and I think we can learn a lot from that rule. This is the type of stuff that kind of goes on that, and other people saw it. No one said anything. Like, what I want to happen is that people need to speak up. Like, don't, like, yes, I can speak up for myself, but if you see something wrong, like, say, what is going, like, what are you doing? Like, this is not acceptable. Why, why is she being treated?